and we can open in prayer with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, I thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you for the privilege we have to assemble together and to receive instruction. We ask for your hand of blessing upon us this morning, Father, as we uh, turn to the scriptures to find wisdom, guidance, direction. Some cases we're going to find hope and comfort this morning. In other cases, we might find uh, rebuke and chastisement. But in whatever form or fashion the Word of God impacts us, we know that it is God-breathed and inspired. We know that it is profitable. We pray that the profitability might be multiplied to us on this day. Set aside distractions. Give us concentration. Provide for us the eyes to see, the ears to hear, and a heart to understand. And we thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right. Gentlemen here for the Bible study this morning. Outstanding. Have a seat. Matthew chapter 9 as we get started this morning. Matthew chapter 9. We are dealing with the call of Matthew and his reception. Uh, and so you can join me in Matthew 9. We will also take a look at the parallel accounts in Mark and in Luke as well. But we'll start with Matthew chapter 9. This is episode number 10 as we follow along in our Harmony of the Gospels. Episode number 10 in the Galilean ministry. You might notice, and I don't actually have one up here in the pulpit with me, but in the Harmony of the Gospel handouts that we've distributed, that uh, the ministry of Jesus Christ is broken down into various periods. And the, and the Galilean ministry is the longest of those periods in terms of time and also in terms of just the number of events that transpired during that uh, during that section of his ministry. It's going to be followed by a Perean ministry and then ultimately by the last Judean ministry, uh, including the Passion Week and the events that follow the uh, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So we are in the midst of the Galilean ministry. The numbering gets reset in each section. So this is uh, chapter number 10 or episode number 10, we're calling it, uh, in the listing of the Galilean ministry. But those numbers will restart back to number one again when we conclude the Galilean portion and we move on to the uh, to the Berean, or I'm sorry, the Perean portion of the Lord's ministry. But for this morning, we're dealing with episode number 10. We wrapped up last week, episode number 9, and dealing with uh, the material where this paralytic got healed, this man and his uh, faith and his associates and their faith, and to where they needed to find a way to get him in uh, face-to-face with the Lord. And they uh, went to extraordinary means by which to do that. There was no room. It was crowded. They couldn't get him through the door. And they ended up uh, busting a hole through the roof and lowering him down and uh, providing for it there. And so the last couple of weeks have been spent in that story. And a good story, good material there to study. In fact, it's one of the better-known uh, episodes where even most, uh, a lot of non-church folks at least know the story of uh, letting this man down through the roof. But moving on this morning, let's look at Matthew chapter 9. And you can notice that it follows, in the context of Matthew, it follows immediately the episode that preceded it. Uh, whereas in verse 8 we read, When the crowd saw this, they were awestruck and glorified God who had given such authority to men. And for those who were on positive volition, in other words, those that were thankful for God's plan going forth, they were very excited to recognize that the Christ was in their midst, they were very positive to the revealed Word of God, this was a good thing. Uh, for the Pharisees and the scribes and the others that were not positive, in other words, we call this negative uh, they were not happy with this. Why? Because of that exact authority issue. See, as it says, who had given such authority to men uh, in, in positive, hungry believers that were thrilled and humble before the Lord. That was a great thing. 
But for the Pharisees, it was not a great thing because the authority, as far as they saw it, was theirs. <laughs> the authority belonged to them. They were in charge. They wanted to be able to control people's lives and tell people what to do and how to think and, and uh, exactly what constituted a Sabbath and how far could you walk on a Sabbath and how much could you lift on a Sabbath and could you what activities could you do and even if you could do it within what stipulations could you do it. See, and if you ever want really a vivid illustration of that, just read the Mishnah sometime and you'll find some of the stipulations as far as even giving money to a beggar, for example. That could violate the Sabbath because you're lifting something. You're lifting the coins and you're, you're giving the coins to this beggar. So how do you do it? Can you do it with your right hand or your left hand? And, and if he's at your window, you know, does he have to reach his hand in or do you reach your hand out? So as to not violate the Sabbath. See, now you and I might look at that and say, well, isn't this nitpicking and isn't this extraordinary and, and legalism to the, to the nth degree? Yes, it is. And that's the exact point. And when the Lord of the Sabbath arrives, we're going to see a number of Sabbath controversies throughout the life of Christ. When the Lord of the Sabbath arrives, he doesn't recognize what they have turned the Sabbath into. See, because they have turned the Sabbath and every other aspect of Mosaic law into such a controlling device uh, in the process of their man-made religion. So uh, that authority issue, just keep this in mind. I, I illustrate this this morning because that authority issue is one that's going to continue to be a source of friction between the Lord and between uh, him and the, and the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, the Sanhedrin, and all the rest. Now, moving on then to verse 9. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting in the tax collector's booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he got up and followed him. Real simple, isn't it? Then it happened that as Jesus was reclining at the table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were dining with Jesus and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why is your teacher eating with the tax collectors and sinners? But when Jesus heard this, he said, It is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire compassion and not sacrifice, for I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. All right. Now, for this morning, I think we can bypass reading the Mark and Luke parallels. They are very similar. Uh, only some slight differences, I think, in the text. And we'll highlight them as we go through the study. Um, and most of them are simply detail-oriented. You'll notice uh, after the call of Matthew, it doesn't really say in verse 10 which house this is. It just says he was reclining at the table in the house. Uh, you read the, the Mark parallels and Luke parallels, and we learn that it's actually Matthew's house. All right, And details like that we pick up in the, uh, in the parallel account. I think we'll stick with Matthew since this is his gospel and this is his story. <laughs> right? We'll stick with Matthew so far as this episode is concerned. And uh, we'll pick up some details along the way uh, as appropriate, I think, in the, uh, in the parallel accounts. Now, we're going to give you a total of five principles. And if, if you like to keep notes, you'll get these down as points one through five. The first of which, who is this guy we're dealing with anyway? Who is Matthew the tax collector? Matthew the tax collector is the name found in his own gospel record of his calling. Matthew the tax collector. Matthew the tax collector. It's kind of like John the Baptist, right? Uh, where you get a, an adjective descriptive following your name and it's attached to your name. Like, 
Alexander the Great. All right, and you get these descriptives that are attached to your name, so much so that they are characterized forever. And uh, that is the case here for Matthew, Matthew the tax collector. I was trying to figure out who's in charge of those. You know, who gives out the great? You know, how, do, how come Alexander gets the great and, uh, and, and Ivan gets the terrible? Right? I mean, who's in charge of that? And can you take requests? I mean, can you put yourself, can you nominate yourself for one of those? Well, tragically, you really can't. They come along by historians, you know, in the years after your death and so forth. And I guess it's kind of a a common consensus among historians as to whether you're reckoned as the great or not. Um, And so fortunately, we don't have to worry about any of that. The Lord takes care of all that in the judgment seat of Christ. You and I don't have to sweat it. As a matter of fact, the Bible says not many mighty, not many, you know, famous. And so when it comes down to what the world considers as great historical figures, uh, isn't it interesting how the secular historians put such dominance on characters like Alexander and Julius Caesar and all these other pagans, men that are in hell today, and yet David doesn't even get footnotes in most secular historical works? Say some are even speculating that maybe David never even existed at all, that he was a, a fictional hero to the Jewish people and it was mythology promoted by the Jewish people. And they try to even doubt the, the historicity of David, right? One of the greatest historical figures in the history of the world. One of the greatest types of Christ in the history of the world was King David. So anyway, as far as the world's fame is concerned, I guess we'll just let it run its own course because this world's passing away and along with it, it's lusts. But you get those names like the great, the terrible, the whatever. All right. Here's the tax collector. See, much like John the Baptist, and that distinguishes him from John the, the disciple or John the apostle. Well, here's Matthew, the tax collector. And this is how he's referred to in the listing of the twelve, in his own listing of the twelve, and uh, in the, uh, the episode here in Matthew chapter 9. He is the tax collector. That's the name found in his own gospel record, as we have it described here in 9.9. 9. Over in chapter 10 and verse 3, uh, you can flip a page there and join me in Matthew 10. The names of the twelve apostles are these. Now, these are the twelve, and they are a particular grouping of apostles. They're called the twelve consistently throughout the Gospels and throughout the book of Acts. Uh, Elsewhere, they're called the apostles of the Lamb, for example. In the book of Revelation, they're referred to as the apostles of the Lamb. And this group of twelve are the ones that that will have their names written on the New Jerusalem and things like that. There were other apostles beyond the twelve, but that's uh, beyond what we're going to address this morning. Paul was one such apostle, Barnabas. James, uh, Jude, and so forth. But now notice, these are the names of the twelve apostles, or these. And then it goes on and lists them. And the, uh, in verse 3, we have Philip, Bartholomew, Thomas, and Matthew the tax collector. Now you'll notice, we don't have, uh, you know, Philip the CPA or whatever he was. You know, Philip the ditch digger, uh, Bartholomew the uh, painter. Uh, you know, we don't have the description for most of the apostles. We know Simon the Zealot simply because of his terrorist connections there with the Zealot party that was working what they could work to bring independence to the Jewish people and to destroy the, the uh, to bring down the rule of Rome over them, Judas Iscariot. But most of these apostles don't have descriptive titles. Matthew does. Matthew the tax collector. And that's unique when you read the listing in Luke and when you read the listing in the book of Acts. Um, he's not described as the tax collector in those other lists. But in his own list, Matthew being the author of Matthew here, in his own list, Matthew puts the tax collector on the end of his name. 
The other listings of the apostles, uh, Mark 3.18, Luke 6.15. Just grab those. I've encouraged you from time to time to uh, go ahead and draw these lists up. In Mark 3.18, he's again in this middle third. Andrew and Philip, Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and James. He goes on and describes them. There he's just simply Matthew. No reference to Matthew, the tax collector. Uh, Luke 6 and verse 15. You have the listings of them again, starting with Simon called Peter, Andrew, James and John, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew and Thomas. Again, there's no reference to the tax collector. So he's Matthew, the tax collector. That's his name. That's found in the gospel record of his calling. Found in the gospel listing of... And I'm going to describe this for you here in a moment. So before I start drawing pictures, let's just... I won't get ahead of myself. Now, the Greek name Matthias, M-A-T-H-T-H-A-I-O-S. A little awkward for us to double our THs, THs. Right? We don't really like that. My, my brother's name is Matthew, and it's just a single T-H, M-A-T-H. No, it's not. It's M-A-T-T-H-E-W. That's how Matthew spells his name. Some just go with a single T. All right. I've never seen anybody in the English spell their name with an M-A-T-H-T-H-E-W. That doesn't really happen in, in English spelling. But you do have the doubling of the, uh, of the theta there. Uh, M-A-T-H-T-H-A-I-O-S. And uh, as a Greek name, it really comes from a Hebrew original. And uh, so the, the etymology of it is dependent upon the Hebrew more so than the Greek. Uh, although you can you can kind of see the blending of theos and the the aspect of it there, it really comes from the Hebrew mat tathaya, uh, gift of uh, of Yahweh. These yah endings, as we find them, um, what color are we looking at here? These yah endings that we find them, like Jeremiah, Isaiah, Zechariah, all of these yah endings that we have, uh, is the same thing here with uh, with uh, mat tathaya uh, as the gift of Yahweh. Now, we have another name found in Mark and found in Luke. That's the name of Levi. So, subpoint A, the name Levi. Levi, the son of Alphaeus. That's the name that's utilized in Mark and Luke. Mark 2.14, Luke 5.27. All right. Mark 2.14 and Luke 5.27. And so we recognize the multiple names here. We don't have a hang-up with that. We accept the fact that a lot of these disciples had multiple names. Peter had multiple names. He had his birth name. He had his, uh, the name that the Lord named him. Even the name Peter was given by the Lord. But the Aramaic of, of Petros, the Aramaic of the Greek Peter was Cephas, was Kephas. And uh, but his given name at birth was Simon. He was Simon bar Jonah, Simon, the son of of Jonas or the son of Jonah. And so multiple names is uh, is not unusual in the gospel record. Primarily uh, when you have Hebrew names and you have Greek names or you have Roman names, for example, very common We're we're um, maybe a bit handicapped as Americans in the in the aspect of where we're so uh, wrapped up in our monolinguistic culture, as it were. Most of us are simply English speakers, uh, although in Texas you get quite a few bilingual with English and Spanish, and that's uh, perhaps unique to this part of the country. But most, for the most part, Americans are tragically uh, monolingual, and that's just the way it works. We, we discussed that. There's an, in fact, there's typical jokes that, that play on that, as a matter of fact, where you ask, you know, what is a person called who speaks two languages? You know, they're called bilingual. 
and somebody who speaks three languages are trilingual. And uh, what do you call somebody who only speaks one language? That, that's an American. <laughs> All right. <laughs> and, uh, and you notice that if you travel overseas and so forth, and uh, as I've done in different uh, mission travels and so forth, that you, you encounter people and they speak two languages, three languages, four languages, and you try to find one in common to where you can communicate with the other person. Well, at this stage of Israel's history, they are Jewish people who have, by and large, lost track of the Hebrew language. They're speaking mainly Aramaic ever since their return from the Babylonian captivity. But the culture of the day is Greek. It has been ever since Alexander. But the uh, political power of the day is Roman. And so you've got this mixture of Hebrew, Aramaic, Greek, and Latin languages that permeates the, the gospel record. And so it's not unusual for these individuals to have multiple names depending upon the, uh, the, the language of the person they're speaking to, see. And in particular, if they have business dealings with Greeks, it's not unusual for them to have a Greek name. Or if they have business dealings with the Romans, you find them with, with Latin names. So we don't really have any dispute or any question identifying Matthew with Levi. I, I really think anyone who tries to make the case that Matthew is not the same as Levi is really on shaky linguistic grounds. They're on shaky uh, historical grounds, and they're going to defy really the vast um, consensus of, uh, of all scholarship for 20 centuries now of church history, that Matthew is Levi. And the accounts are so identical in terms of their calling uh, sitting in the tax booth, follow me, he follows him, and then a dinner that night. Okay, And it's identical in the records of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And so uh, we don't get all wrapped up over the fact that Mark calls him Levi and Luke calls him Levi, but Matthew in his own gospel calls him by this particular name of Matthew. Now, Levi is a name very familiar to us. Four Bible characters bear this name, and I'll give them to you simply under subpoints now, one, two, three, and four. The most famous of which is the Levite uh, that the tribe is named after. The son of Jacob and Leah, their third son. And the tribe of Levi and the priesthood is named after him. Remember, the, we call it the Levitical priesthood. We've got the book of Leviticus. See, imagine if Reuben had been chosen as the priestly tribe, we'd call that third book of the Bible uh, Rubinicus or something like that. Who knows what we'd call but it's not the rabbinical priesthood, it's the Levitical priesthood, named after the third son of Jacob, Levi. The tribe of Levi, and of course all of the Levites that are not uh, descendants of Aaron are not eligible for the priesthood, but they're still in the Levitical tribe, and so they become the assistants of the priests, which we just simply call Levites. They are the priestly assistants of the Levitical tribe. Now, does that mean that Matthew himself was a Levite? If his name was Levi, can we narrow it down that that was his tribe? Well, we don't know. We don't know the tribe of any of these guys other than we know that, that Christ was of the tribe of Judah and, and likely uh, James and John as his cousins were also of the descendants of David and the tribe of Judah. For the rest of these disciples, we really don't know. We know they're Jewish. We don't specifically know what tribe they're from. I suppose it's natural to assume that Levi came from the tribe of Levi. Couldn't imagine somebody coming from the tribe of uh, Asher and they give him the name Levi. You know, maybe that, not necessarily, you know, typical. But for any event, that's the first of the Levi's. The second two are both in the line of Christ. And we really don't know much about them other than where they apply in the genealogies. 
Um, and we, we have them listed here in Luke chapter 3. They're both in Luke chapter 3 because they're both in the maternal line of Christ. Where um, I just threw uh, a little bit of water in the, on the uh, concept of somebody from a tribe of Judah being given the name Levi because we have it here. Luke chapter 3 and verse 29. Um, in the, the generations of, of Jesus going backwards now in time where we have the son of, the son of, the son of. In verse 29, the son of Joshua, the son of Eliezer, the son of Joram, the son of Mattat, the son of Levi. Then it goes on, the son of Simeon, the son of Judah, the son of Joseph, the son of Jonah, the son of Elkiam. And it goes on eventually back to the son of Nathan, the son of David. All right. So this is the maternal line of Jesus Christ that does proceed down through Mary, the virgin that gave birth to the Savior. And uh, in that maternal line, which descends from David, but through Nathan rather than through Solomon, we have this character here, Levi, uh, who, uh, whose father's name was Simeon and who uh, gave birth to a son named Mattat, which is not really that different from uh, Matthew, as a matter of fact. Then the third Levi we have in the Bible is in this very same genealogy, just a few verses prior, up in verse 24. And uh, we have another son of Matt Thatt, son of Levi. But this one, this Levi has a son named Matt Thatt, but this Levi uh, has a father named Melchi. You see that there in verse 24. And this one is actually only two generations prior to Mary because Matt Thatt's son is Eli and uh, Eli was the father of the virgin. So uh, we're dealing there with a great grandfather of our Savior. Uh, versus the one several generations before that's up there in verse 29. So anyway, Levi is not that common. We've got the, the man for whom the tribe is named after. We've got two mentions of Levi's in the maternal line of Jesus Christ. Not that common of a name. And then we come across this tax collector in uh, Capernaum. Because the fourth and final Levi that we have in the scripture is the Apostle Matthew. All right. Our fourth and final Levi is the Apostle Matthew. I even supplied a hyperlink there. I'll read a little clip for you. Matthew. This is from Unger's Bible Dictionary. We do have a copy of Unger's over here in the church library. Uh, a contraction of Mattathias, gift of Jehovah, the son of a certain Alpheus, surnamed Levi. It is not known whether his father was the same as the Alpheus named as the father of James the Less. We'll do some more of these studies when we work up the list of the twelve. Uh, James the Less was also a son of Alpheus. And so that's led some to wonder, you know, were these guys brothers or how does this work? Was it a different Alpheus? And uh, if you really want some fun, try to sort out your Alpheuses in, uh, in the gospel record. Uh, Matthew's residence was at Capernaum, and he was a publican or tax gatherer. I'll give you the vocabulary for tax gatherer and why we get the word publican. Those of you that, uh, that uh, are very fond of the King James you memorized from your childhood, uh, you're familiar with the term publican, and uh, we'll talk about that this morning. There was at that time a large population surrounding the Lake of Gennesaret. That's the Sea of Galilee. Its fisheries supplied a source of livelihood, and its surface was alive with busy navigation and traffic. A custom house was established at Capernaum by the Romans, where Matthew was tax collector. The publicans proper were usually Romans of rank and wealth who, who uh, farmed out the business of collecting to resident deputies called portior, uh, portators or portatories. We'll give you that vocabulary as well coming up. 
It was to this class that Matthew belonged because Matthew was a native. Matthew was uh, Jewish. He was a Hebrew. So he was the one that actually sat in the booth to collect the fees. And he reported to the publicani, to the, to the publican above him. While Matthew was thus occupied sitting in the tax office, Jesus said to him, follow me. He probably already knew Jesus for he immediately rose and followed him. You know, just stands to reason the lord had been teaching previously in capernaum the the fame and reputation had started to grow there were untold numbers that were listening to him teach on previous occasions shortly after this matthew gave a big reception for him in his house we'll look at that this morning and perhaps as a farewell to his old associates for many tax gatherers and sinners came and were dying now we don't know that this was a farewell dinner uh, you know, kind of a thing that Matthew was throwing a, a farewell dinner to his fellow tax collectors saying, you know, sorry, guys, uh, you know, this is the last hurrah for me kind of thing. We don't know that. It kind of seems fitting, but maybe, you know, who knows? And these were clearly these were his associates. These were his the people that he traveled around. These were the ones he wanted to to uh, celebrate his new calling with and to let them know why it was he was no longer pursuing a very profitable career path. A lot of money in being a tax collector. And uh, even if it meant you had to be a social leper and outcast and hated by your fellow Jews, oh, well, show me the money. Matthew was like, hey, I'll take it, right? Because it was very lucrative to, uh, to do that. We'll talk about the uh, profitability of tax collecting here shortly. After this, though, we find no mention of him accepting the catalogs of the apostles. He never shows up in any additional Bible stories in the gospel records or in the uh, book of Acts, other than he's, he's there in the upper room in uh, Acts chapter 1 and verse 13 when the Holy Spirit descends. Uh, the gospel that bears his name was written by this apostle according to the testimony of all antiquity. The testimony of all antiquity. And it's really only been 19th and 20th century Bible haters that have come along to try to say, well, Matthew didn't really write Matthew. And you had this Q thing that came along and all these other garbage that are not, uh, that are really the, the, the invention of higher criticism and the invention of 19th and 20th century God haters and Bible haters, as I call them. All the, the unanimous testimony of all antiquity. There's even a... Uh, a fairly impressive list of 47 um, historical citations to this apostle, Matthew, Levi, the tax collector, as the author of the first gospel. And there's really no reason to doubt that other than the skeptics that wanted to doubt that Matthew even existed at all. All right. The gospel that bears his name was written by this apostle according to the testimony of all antiquity. Tradition relates that Matthew preached in Judea after the ascension of the twelve, uh, after the ascension for twelve or fifteen years, and then went to foreign nations. It's remarkable because everybody has a Matthew legend. India's got a Matthew legend. Africa's got a Matthew legend. Uh, regions to uh, Parthia, some of the regions to the north and northeast have Matthew legends. The Caucasian region, the Caucasus Mountains, uh, Georgia. Uh, some of those places, they've got Matthew legends. It's remarkable how many uh, traditions or legends built up around this tax collector who's not really found very frequently in the Gospels other than sitting in the booth, following Christ, throwing a party, and then being listed in the Twelve. Right? Not much beyond that, but some tremendous uh, legends built upon him, and I think primarily because this Gospel was so widely spread, so beloved, so powerful see and if you think about it how many bible verses do you have memorized from the gospel of matthew quite a few all right quite a few 
when you look at the Synoptic Gospels. All right. In any event, there's our uh, Bible Dictionary article on Matthew. And I would encourage you, if, you don't, uh, if you're not familiar with uh, the resources that we have available here in the church library, uh, get with Stephanie or get with me or somebody that knows what books are in there and uh, recognize there are a lot of resources available just to pull a book off the shelf and start doing some homework and finding out information on uh, maybe a character study, maybe a doctrinal concept, uh, a geographical study, and so forth. So point B. The name in the lists of the twelve apostles is consistently Matthew. The name in the lists of the twelve apostles, okay? And I got tired of typing lists of the twelve apostles. Lists of the twelve apostles. Everybody talks about lists of the twelve apostles. So I coined a word. It's called a dodecapostologue. All right? That's, well, you can do a control V and paste it. The dodecapostologue. I coined a word. And it's almost a real word. Because dodecalogue is a word. You didn't realize dodecalogue is a word. You can do Google searches on dodecalogue and come up with a few things. All right. The name in the list of the 12 apostles is consistently Matthew. There are no Levi's anywhere in those lists. Okay. Now, I've encouraged you to do this in the past, and I don't know if you've done it or not. So this time I'm going to encourage you to do it, but I'm also going to accept your homework submission. So if you turn it in, I will grade it, and then you'll get extra credit. All right. I've, I've recommended this. I don't know how many times, but take a piece of paper and across the top now, just put uh, make four columns. Okay, that means you need three vertical lines. All right, and then make your lists. All right, start with Matthew ten three. Uh, get your list out of Mark three. Get your list out of Luke six. And then Luke is the same author, but get the list also out of Acts one. Okay, and then you can list them down here. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve. All right. And when you're done, what you will have is a dodecalogue. You will have a list of twelve. Okay. Dodeca being the Greek word for twelve and dodeca being the prefix that's attached to things that are grouped in groups of twelve. Dodecahedrons are twelve-sided polygons. All right. Now, um, you will have four lists of 12, okay, for dodecalogues, or since they're lists of 12 apostles, dodecapostologues. Now, you put these four together, you're going to notice some things, okay? First of all, Peter is always first. Every time. Don't take my word for it. Do the homework, you'll find it, okay? Judas is always last. Judas Iscariot, the betrayer. He's always last. And actually, we've got to put a star there because by Acts chapter 1, he's dead. He's already committed suicide. He's dead. He's in hell. But the, the other 11 are still listed, so we include it as a dodecalogue uh, because they list the 11 and then they have to cast lots to replace Judas with Matthias. All right? Now, anyway, go through the list. You'll notice some things in particular. You will notice... The order of the names changes roughly here or there. Matthew is in different spots in the four dodecalogues. All right? uh, but you will notice consistently that they're grouped in groups of four. And that even though the orders will change slightly, uh, no one will ever jump out of their section. 
Okay? Um, as long as I'm in Matthew, we'll just read the Matthew to Decalogue here. Uh, the first is Simon, who was called Peter, Andrew his brother, James the son of Zebedee, and John. So Peter, oops, we want red. Andrew, James, and John. Okay? And that order may change a bit. In other words, the Andrew, James, and John order may get shuffled a little bit, but it will always be those same four in that top group. Okay? Likewise, the next group, Philip, Bartholomew, Thomas, and Matthew. Friends called him Phil, Bart, Tom, and Matt. All right? Those four. Now, that listing will change slightly. Matthew will not always be number eight. He's uh, eight in a couple of them, and he's number seven in a couple of them. See, just so you know. All right? And then the last four are always these same ones. Um, Matthew's tax collector. All right, we've got James, the son of Alphaeus, or James the less. Uh, Thaddeus and Simon. Simon the Zealot. And those four are always the last four. Okay, Their order is swapped around a bit, but it's always um, in those groupings. Likewise, oh, I pointed out that Peter is always number one in every list. That's true. Philip is always the first of that middle grouping. Always. You might think of him as the leader of that group of four. And uh, likewise, the leader of that group of four. Anyway, do this homework. You'll find uh, some other things. Now, you'll also notice that as you do this, there are never any Levi's mentioned. There are no Levi's because Levi is Matthew, all right? And all the gospel records acknowledge that. Mark acknowledges that. Luke acknowledges that. Because even though Mark and Luke call him Levi when he's called, and when he steps out of his tax booth, he's a Levi, but when he's cataloged as an apostle, he's a Matthew, okay? He's a Matthew in Mark 3.18. He's a Matthew in Luke 6.15. Even though he is a, uh, he's called Levi in Mark 2 and in Luke 5. There is no dodecapostolog that contains any Levi. And these, by the way, are just some of the synoptic studies you'll do, for example. And then when you try to figure out who's, uh, who's Bartholomew anyway and who's Nathaniel and is Bartholomew the same as Nathaniel and who's Lebius and some of these other names, okay? Don't get frustrated. Just realize that you're dealing with people that have multiple names. And poor Judas, not, Bra uh, not uh, Iscariot, right? I mean, how'd you like to be that other Judas knowing that it was the other Judas that betrayed Christ is, is known forever as the traitor, as the betrayer. And you're stuck with that name, Right? I mean, there were quite a few Adolfs in the 1920s and 1930s. Scads of, of Adolfs. My wife has a number of Adolfs in her genealogy. She was a Schneider. She's a very German person. And Adolf was a fairly common name until the 1940s. And then, you know, the, the, the babies, the parents stopped naming their children Adolf after, after that. You know why? Well, obviously. Who wants to have an Adolf? All right. So, we have the listings of them there. Thirdly. Matthew's dodecapostolog, Matthew's list of the twelve apostles, is the only one to identify Matthew as the tax collector. 
And it's always interesting to note how does an author refer to himself when he appears in the material about which he writes. Okay? When, when John writes his gospel, how does he deal with himself in a narrative that he doesn't really want to talk about himself? He wants to talk about Jesus, right? Never refers to himself by name. He calls himself the beloved disciple. He talks about himself as the other disciple. He never re- references himself by name in his own gospel. John doesn't do that. Likewise, what does Matthew do when he writes about Matthew? The tax collector. See, never losing sight of the fact that he's a sinner saved by grace. That he's but the last person in the world that deserved to be called as an apostle and put to work for the glory of Jesus Christ. He's a traitor to his own people. Making money in the process. And yet, saved by grace through faith and called to minister and serve as an apostle of the Lamb. Likewise, look how Jude refers to himself in the salutation of the book of Jude, or how James refers to himself in James 1.1, the salutation of James. When an author has to refer to himself, but would really rather not, (laughs) how do they do that? And Matthew referencing himself as the tax collector. All right. Under point two, tax collectors were considered traitors as employees in the service of the Roman government. Tax collectors were considered traitors as employees in the service of the Roman government. Remember, they're under occupation. All of this talk today about how the imperial American empire is storming around the world and occupying countries and dominating and all these other things. All right? Which is ludicrous if you ever study history and you ever study what true imperialism historically was and always has been. All right? where indeed foreign nations were occupied, where indeed natural resources were plundered, where, as a matter of fact, entire populations were enslaved to the benefit of the conquering nation and so forth. You know, it's actually been the case where America tends to improve the places where they've been and they want to leave as soon as they can and and different things for a lot of reasons. The Romans were occupying the Jewish nation. Uh, they took over from the Greeks, who prior to the Romans had uh, had uh, been occupying the, the Jewish nation. For a brief while, the Jews gained their independence under the Maccabees, but it didn't last long because the Romans swept in, the legions swept in. All right. If you're not familiar with that, I encourage you to do that. Tremendous. Who was the Roman uh, general that conquered the uh, Palestine region there? Extra credit this morning. Who? No, no, no. no. Titus destroyed Jerusalem in 70 A.D. after... After all this, I'm talking about the very first one that established Roman rule that came in, conquered it, made it a Roman province and set up Herod, the Tetrarch or Herod, the great as the puppet king. No, it was Caesar's enemy it was Pompey. Yeah, Pompey. All right. So if you ever read the civil war between Julius Caesar and Pompey and you ever read some of that fascinating era of, of Roman history, one of the things that the secular history books don't like to talk about was Pompey actually achieved much of his great success in Egypt and in, in, uh, in the east and in uh, Jerusalem and so forth. All right. But tax collectors were traitors. Now, the Romans, subpoint A, the Romans utilized two levels of tax collectors. We saw that briefly a moment ago when we were looking at Unger's Bible Dictionary. The Romans utilized two levels of tax collectors. It was a fairly efficient system compared to the Persians or the Greeks or other empires that had 
even more layers. The Romans kind of figured out that if they minimized the layers, they only had to deal with two levels of corruption. <laughs> they only had to deal with two thieves that were scamming prophets instead of maybe eight or nine levels of bureaucracy where there were thieves along the way that were taking the cut every step of the way. And so if they just limited it to two, that was manageable. <laughs> they would consider that you know, appropriate financial loss, the cost of doing business. Two levels of tax collectors. Publicani, that's the plural of the Latin publicanus. They were the holders of tax farming contracts. They were the holders of tax farming contracts. And they were the direct agents that Roman governors or procurators or puppet kings would contract with, see, depending on the structure, whether it was an independent puppet kingdom, such as Herod enjoyed for a while, the, the uh, uh, Herod's kingdom there of Judea, or if it became a governed province, in which case uh, you would then have a governor, such as the case uh, Pontius Pilate then, or other governors. And there were distinctions uh, sometimes between uh, an imperial province and a senatorial province, whether they, the governor reported directly to Caesar or where the governor reported to the Senate, different distinctions there, but for the most part they were administered the same way. The Romans put a guy in charge and said, take care of it. All right? Squash any rebellions before they form. Pay us our tribute. And you can pretty much do what you want. Herod could do whatever he wanted in his kingdom. So long as he paid tribute to Rome, he was fine. Herod was amazing at this. Herod was so amazing because he had friends on every side of everything. And his only real enemy was Cleopatra. Cleopatra hated Herod. But even Herod, even after that civil war, managed to come out smelling like a rose because he convinced, uh, he was able to convince Augustus that he was loyal, even though he was very close friends with Mark Antony. All right? The consummate politician that always came up uh, on the winning side, no matter who won, he was always on top. All right, well, the, the Romans then would establish two layers for tax collection, and, and the publicani was the top layer. They tended to be Romans. Uh, they would, because they were viewed to be more loyal to Rome. And so, uh, although there were exceptions here or there, to be given a, uh, a tax farming contract meant that you were a Roman citizen. All right? But then the second layer were the portiores, portatories, which we also saw in Unger a moment ago. They were hired by the publicani and were usually native to the province being taxed. The local person. This was what Matthew was, the native Jew, native to Capernaum familiar with the local language, the local customs, and so forth. And one publicani might have multiple portatories working for him, see, as is in the case. And we'll uh, break it down for you. We'll give you the Greek vocabulary here under subpoint B. And uh, we really only know two by name. Do you know who the other one is in the Gospels besides Matthew? Who's the other tax collector in the Gospels? Zach yeah, there you go. Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus. That's all right. All right. And we'll talk about him as well. He was actually a chief tax collector. And so the possibility that he had actually risen to the level of publicani rather than portatory is, uh, I think, a quite legitimate uh, question to ask. So point B. Your Greek vocabulary is teloni, tax collectors. We'll give, uh, we'll give you the Strong's number here in a moment. I think I put that in here. Oh, don't tell me I didn't put that in there. Oh, yes, I did. Ah, oh, I gave it to you already under subpoint C, didn't I? Did, did anybody see that? Did you write that down already? 
Did you write down Telonis when I had this up here? Okay. Yeah, the singular is Telonis, number 5057. Okay. T-E-L-O-N-E-S, Telonis. It's the long O, it's the omega. Telonis, that's a singular tax collector. Number 5057. All right, so I gave that to you already previously. Now, subpoint B. The Teloni, that's plural. Tax collectors as a class were considered to be unclean. Now, that's not a hygiene thing. Okay, I'm sure they took baths and showers like other people did. Uh, but ritually, ceremonially, as a class, they were considered to be unclean. They were excluded from temple worship. They were excluded from participation in uh, Passover observances, uh, other feasts during the year, other rites, other rituals, other uh, activities. Because as a class, they were considered to be unclean, and they were rightly tied to the term hamartaloi, sinners. And you've got a lot of places in the gospel where you have tax collectors and sinners. Okay, We have it here in this, in this um, dinner that Matthew's holding. And the Pharisees are looking down their long, snooty noses, and they're saying, why is Jesus doing this? And they quiz the disciples. They grab, you know, Peter and John and these other guys. Um, you know, why is your teacher eating with Teloni and Hamartaloi, with tax collectors and sinners? Say, they're unclean. You shouldn't eat with them. You shouldn't be in the same house with them. You shouldn't be around them. They're unclean. We'll talk about some of that. And as far as what was the purpose for ritual purity what was the purpose what was the distinction between clean and unclean it was a ritual cleansing not not anything with hygiene or, or anything physically dirty that needed to be physically washed this was somebody that was ceremonially unclean that needed to be ceremonially washed and don't confuse it just because there was a laver and some water involved it wasn't uh you know it wasn't they didn't use soap and they didn't scrub and they didn't get the antibacterial disinfectant out it wasn't a physical cleaning for hygiene purposes it was a ceremonial ritual to teach the principles that we understand today that take place with a confession of sin he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness the holy spirit being typified and illustrated with the agency of water okay well we have the water baptism that pictures our baptism by the holy spirit into christ in any event um you have all those terms there. Matthew 9, 10, and 11, that's our dinner party here. It comes up again in Matthew eleven nineteen, where you've got tax collectors and sinners that are linked together. Mark 2, 15 and 16, Luke 5, 30. Also Luke 19, 2 through 10. And that's where Zacchaeus gets uh, introduced to us. Luke 19, if you're not familiar with Zacchaeus. Um, 19, or I'm sorry, 2 through 10. This... Uh, it says there was a man called uh, by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and he was rich. Okay. Why was he rich? Because he was a chief tax collector. <laughs> All right. He got to skim the most profits before he gave the bare minimum to Rome. Zacchaeus was trying to see who Jesus was and was unable because of the crowd for he was small in stature. It's a favorite passage for short people. All right. Short people love this passage because they identify somehow with Zacchaeus. And they've had times in their life that they've been wanting to see what's going on, but the crowds in front of them won't let them. And uh, Hugh Crowder loves to teach this passage. Say, <laughs> Hugh even made comment to the fact that he says, wow, this is a tall pulpit. <laughs> so I didn't think so. It's perfect. You know, anyway, Zacchaeus is a, the patron saint of those that are 
vertically challenged, I think. that uh, you know. And so what does he do? He climbs a tree. He ran on ahead and climbed into a sycamore tree in order to see him, for he was about to pass through that way. And they, the kids, Ethel, do you ever sing that song with the children about Zacchaeus and climbing the sycamore tree? And, okay, yeah, that's an old children's Sunday school song from years, pa- uh, years back. All right, but there he is. And we have here through this uh, the collection of tax gatherers and sinners. And they grumble in verse 7 that he's going to go eat in the, in the house of a man who's a sinner. Okay? As if not everybody's a sinner, right? We're going to talk about that. Why does it call these people sinners? Isn't everybody a sinner? Okay? You know, raise your hand if you're a sinner. Well, that's all of us. So why are these guys called sinners? Okay? We're going to talk about that as well. Tax collectors. They're, as a class, they're considered unclean. And we're rightly tied to the term hamartaloi, sinners. Excluded from worship. You know, if, if Matthew was to try to go to the temple with an offering... And, and try to participate in Passover, try to participate in the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Trumpets or anything with uh, the Day of Atonement or anything at all, he'd, he'd be rejected immediately because of his profession. Depart, outcast, unclean, like a leper, like a sinner. All right? He would have no part in the religious observance of his time. And yet Jesus says, follow me. Why? Because <laughs> he's saved. He's saved by grace through faith. He's regenerate. He's born again. He, is, uh, he, he possesses eternal life. And Jesus calls him to the ministry as a disciple. Eventually as an apostle. Now, in our time remaining, sub-point one. Everybody has sinned. Not just tax collectors. <laughs> Not just the harlots and the other folks that we look at. You know, there's other other times when harlots come in and they start anointing, you know, this one that anoints his feet with oil and she's wiping their, you know, with her tears and her hair and she's anointing him and the Pharisees are looking and saying, oh man, he can't be a prophet. If he was a prophet, he'd know that this is a harlot that's wiping his feet, right? And the Pharisees are all scornful, saying Jesus doesn't even know that this harlot's in here wiping his feet, Okay. I'm kind of curious as to how they knew she was a harlot. You know? They must have known somehow. We know they didn't publicly associate with a harlot. They didn't dine with them. They didn't participate in any temple events or things. They weren't in the synagogues. Maybe they just passed by and saw her on the street. I don't know. But they knew she was a harlot. And they said, this sinner is wiping his feet and he doesn't even know it. So he can't be a prophet. And Jesus said, what are you, ta- what are you guys talking about? Of course I'm a prophet. He even knew what they were thinking. <laughs> and I said, you don't know anything about grace. You don't know anything about forgiveness. This woman here is a born again believer. Anyway, everybody has sinned. Not just the tax collectors. Not just the harlots. Not just, you know, we get prideful. People do. I say we. Not we in this room maybe, but we collectively, human beings get prideful because arrogant concepts of sin convince arrogant people that their particular sin is not as bad as other people's sin, right? And so prideful people look at other people and say, man, what sinners are they? when we all should be looking at it and saying, what sinners are all of us? Right? You know, if you're without sin, you can start throwing that first stone. Okay? 
in a disputed textual passage there. All right. So everybody's a sinner. Romans 3.23. I mean, you memorize that verse since kindergarten. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 3.23. That's the verb hamartano, to sin. That's the verb that, that uh, the uh, hamartalos sinner uh, comes from. So we're all sinners. All of us are hamartaloi. We're all sinners. By birth, by nature, by practice. But these guys, who are they? That they're called sinners. All right? Sinners. They actually have the title, sinners. They are characterized by a manner of life that makes no attempt to do otherwise. Characterized by a manner of life that makes no attempt to do otherwise. You might call them just simply irreligious, non-churchgoers, just human beings. You can call them sinners. Why not? That's what they're doing. They're either unregenerate, in which case that's all they can do. No, no unbeliever can reach God's glory, so everything they do is a sin. Um, or they're believers, but they're lost in carnality. They've plunged into, into darkness again. They've grieved, quenched, and resisted the Holy Spirit. They're walking in darkness rather than walking in light. They're disobeying the commands that tell us to walk in the light. They're walking in carnality. And so whether they're unbelievers, the unregenerate, or whether they're carnal believers, if that is their life, if it's characterized by that, you simply call them sinners. Okay? It's kind of like, um, I mean, if you get drunk once in your life, right, when you're 16 and stupid and you don't know any better and you sneak out and a bunch of your idiot friends are on a beach somewhere and you drink a bunch of beer, and you get drunk as an irresponsible teenager. It's the only time in your life you've ever done that. You never touch another drop ever again for the rest of your life, and you live to be 80 or whatever. Could we call you a drunkard? No. Caught drunkard, right? Or you steal one time. You know, you're, you're four years old, you took a piece of candy, and you got caught. And the store clerk pointed it out and made you empty your pockets and your mom was all embarrassed like it was the worst tragedy in the history of Washington State. And so you get punished by the store and you're crying because you're guilty and your mom spanks and your dad whoops you real bad when you get home. All right. Any resemblance to persons living or dead is entirely coincidental. All right. So if you steal one thing in your life, are you a thief? Does that, is that your title for the rest of your life? Are you forevermore called a thief? Well, no, we wouldn't say that. Any more than you'd be a habitual drunkard or you'd be a, a liar or you'd be a, an adulterer or a fornicator or whatever. I mean, it, at least in common English usage, in common terminology, you don't get the title unless the activity is so common and so frequent and so daily that it really characterizes your life. All right. Now, if you get drunk today, tomorrow, the next day, every day for the next week and habitually over the next few months, well, then, yeah, we get to that point. We look at you and say, you're a drunk. OK, why? Because this is the this is the behavior. This is what you're doing. OK, now, if you stop doing that and you, you know, you quit drinking and you, you, know, you, go, you get sober and after a while goes by and you haven't been drunk for a while now, and then we might say, hey, look at that. You're now a reformed drunk. <laughs> You're a former drunk. 
Okay? Different things. Now, that's what we're trying to describe here in terms of these sinners. Okay? Because their whole life is sin. That's all it is. Day after day, moment by moment, they're not even trying. They are irreligious. Those who do not observe the law in detail. I mean, think about it. You know, to the, to the Jewish culture of the day, I'm almost out of time here. We have to close with this. But to the culture of the day, now think about it. We've got people, your neighbors, right, on your street, wherever you live. You've got a neighbor on each side or across the street or wherever. Sunday morning, you get up, get dressed up, get in your car, drive to the church. That's what you do. Okay? But are your, do your neighbors do the same thing? Are they religious? Are they churchgoers? Is that their habit? Is that their pattern? No, most of them don't. Sunday is time to mow the lawn or wash the car or wash the dog or, you know, fly a kite or whatever they do on Sunday mornings, right? And it's just you kind of get a sense in the neighborhood of, you know, these are church people, those aren't church people, that kind of thing, right? You just kind of got a general idea on, on folks. Now, the parallel kind of loses something when you take it back 2,000 years and you put it into their culture. Because what if you've got just an ordinary Jew on the street? Okay? Uh, we'll just call him... Um, uh, what do you want to call him? Bob. Alright? There's no Bobs in the Bible. you got Bob. He's from the tribe of Benjamin. Okay? He's Jewish by birth. But you know what? He doesn't really care about God. doesn't care about that religion thing. He never goes to the temple. Never observes the calendar. To him, the Sabbath is just another day. Go back to work. Make more money. Okay? He's a non-observant Jew. He's racially, he's Jewish. But he's not participating in any of the culture, any of the ceremonies, any of the rituals, any of the feasts, any of the sacrifices. He's obviously, he's not regenerated. He's not born again. He has no, doesn't care about his culture. Doesn't care about his faith. Doesn't care about anything of his, of his people's uh, expectations. That person was called a sinner. That became the characteristic term. A non-observant Jew. Somebody who was born into this covenant, born into this chosen race, but who defied it. Just wanted to live as, as, a, as an unbeliever. Wanted to live as a, as a, as a Gentile. Okay? As if he wasn't born as a part of the covenant people. So those who did not observe the law in detail, therefore were shunned by observers of traditional precepts. They were unclean. And it would be just like eating a pork chop. Right? It was banned. It was not on the list. If I touched it, I was defiled. Okay? These sinners associating with them would defile you because they were unclean, so you wanted nothing to do with them. Because if you associated with them, you couldn't go into the temple the next day. You couldn't go, you'd have to go through the ritual cleansing process. You'd have to bring your offerings. You'd have to get ritually purified again in order to participate in Passover or any of the other festivals. All right, so everybody sinned, but these guys that have the term sinners are a class all to themselves. Thirdly, and I'll let you go with this one, we have a parallel between sinners and Gentiles. Sinners and Gentiles are parallel terms. And, you know, the Jew would have nothing to do with the Gentile because they were unclean. Come out from among them and be ye separate. I will be your God. And so a devout Jew, an observant Jew, somebody who was following the precepts of, of their faith, would not associate with those Gentiles. Why? Because they were unclean. And then they would do the same thing with somebody, even if they were racially Jewish, 
They'd say, you know what? You're a sinner. I'm going to treat you as a Gentile. Right? Treat them as a Gentile. And so they called them sinners. They didn't call them Gentiles. They called them sinners. And when you compare Luke 6.32 with Matthew 5.47, you see that the terms are indeed uh, either parallel equivalents or they are interchangeable. Luke 6.32, I don't know, three minutes long. Luke 6.32, this is where it says, treat others the same way you want them to treat you. I mean, that's the golden rule, isn't it? If you uh, love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. Okay, and that's the term that uh, Luke uses to his Gentile audience. But then Matthew, to his Jewish audience, in Matthew 5.47, says, uh, If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than the others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Therefore, you are to be perfect, as your Heavenly Father is perfect. Anyway, that parallel between sinners and Gentiles. We'll talk about that more. I am out of time, so... Uh, I was going to take some questions, but we'll just save those for tonight. And uh, we'll return to the study one week from this morning. Father, thank you for the truth of your word. We do thank you for your faithfulness. I pray that we might learn these principles. We might learn from the example of our Savior who recognized that uh, those that were in need of the gospel were uh, undoubtedly uh, engaged in, in activity that, uh, that was sinful. And nevertheless, uh, it was necessary to approach those folks and let them know that forgiveness was available. Redemption was possible and provided for. Father, the Pharisees were too prideful to even approach such people. And uh, I pray we might learn from these examples and be, uh, we'll have a heart that seeks after the lost, desires to uh, proclaim the uh, gospel of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And I thank you in his most precious and holy name. Amen.